Hello friends, this is Michael Bohm with Youth Apologetics Training. Here in just a moment, we're going to be speaking with Lynn Wilder. She's a former BYU professor. That's Brigham Young University. That's right. Lynn Wilder used to be a Mormon. Uh, she has quite the testimony. She's the author of the book, Unveiling Grace. Like I said, she is a former Brigham Young University professor. Her husband, Michael Wilder, was part of the High Council. Man, that sounds Masonic. Uh, and the bishopric of uh, the Latter-day Saints. We'll find out more about that as we go today. But yes, this should be fascinating. So with that, let's go ahead and welcome Lynn Wilder to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Thank you. I am thrilled to be here. I'm actually an advisor for Impact Campus Christian Fellowship at Florida Gulf Coast University. So I have a real heart for reaching high school and college-age kids with the gospel. Awesome. Well, great. Okay, so I've already explained to uh, my listeners that uh, you used to be a Brigham Young University uh, professor, and you were part of the Mormon faith for quite a long time, uh, you and your husband and also your kids, uh, and somehow you came out. And and I would love to hear about that today, but first of all, uh, have you always been a Mormon, or how did you get involved with uh, the LDS? I grew up what I would say nominally Christian in Indianapolis, Indiana. My parents took me to church every week, but I only recall one time in all of my growing up years that the Bible was actually opened and read. So I had this sense of who Jesus was, and we did this kind of formal going to church, but I did not know Jesus, and I did not have a personal relationship with Jesus went off to college, um, took notes uh, about all kinds of Eastern philosophies and all kinds of strange things they were teaching me in college, took it right in, you know, and um, eventually met my husband, and at the age of 24 and 25, we were, we'd been married three years, no children, but we were looking for a church. He had grown up Baptist. And um, he, too, didn't really understand the gospel. Two Mormon missionaries knocked on our door. Mike invited them in. I wasn't home at the time. And they began to come and teach us this gospel of Mormonism probably ten weeks, twice a week, until we decided to join the Mormon church. It's interesting for Christians to know that 85% of people who join the Mormon church come right out of biblical Christianity, like Mike and I did. Um, Their kind of target population are folks who know a little bit about the Bible, but know nothing about doctrinal differences and don't recognize the Mormon church as what I now know as a false Christ. Interesting. Yeah, and and are they still trying to identify themselves as Christians? Absolutely. Actually, when we first joined the church in the late 70s, 
they did not want to be called Christians. You were Christians. Mormons were Mormons. Mormons believed they had the fullness of the gospel. Christians just had a little bit of the truth. So it was an add-on religion. You know, you guys aren't often left field, you Christians, but what you have is not enough, and we need to add to it with Mormonism. So it was interesting. I didn't ever see Christians as as having an opposite doctrine, which I know Christianity now is contrary to Mormonism. At the time, I just saw Christians as having a little of the truth, and Mormons had the fullness of the truth. Mormons believe that when the original 12 apostles died, Christ's church failed, and it went into apostasy. So when, you know, Catholicism rose up and Protestantism rose up, those were false faiths or they were aberrations of the truth of the real church that Christ himself had set up. Not until 1830 when Joseph Smith established the Mormon church um, was the real church brought back to the earth for these they call latter days. Right. Now... Getting back to it, right, Joseph Smith, uh, when he asked, supposedly, it, you know, as the story goes, when he asked God which of the faiths were right or which of the denominations were correct, God said none of them. So it's interesting that, that, that on one hand they're saying, oh, yeah, we're Christians. And on the other hand they're saying, yeah, but none of your Christian faiths are correct. We're the only true church. And your professors are corrupt. I mean, not just is it not correct, but it's um, not true, you know. So that was my view of Christianity, although, like I said, um, I really felt like they meant well and they had a little bit of the truth. And so what kind of hooks did they have? I mean, when they when they came over, over to your house and they started talking to uh, your husband, Michael, and eventually started talking to you, too. What types of things were they saying that were appealing to you, that kind of roped you in? Um, not as much what they said was what they did. I mean, these are two young men who had given up two years of their lives, two young, clean-cut, nice, conservative, yeah. you know, kids in suits who had given up two years of a college education to go out and preach the gospel door-to-door, which, first of all, that's very impressive. It was yeah. to us. And then we got attached to these kids. You know, we were just a couple years older than they were, got very attached to them. But the other thing that the Mormon Church did so well for us was my husband was um, – had just gone to work as a professor at Ball State University where we had just graduated. He just finished his master's. And there was another professor in his department that was Mormon. And the missionaries hooked that professor's family up with us. And they began to have us for dinner, take us to church, love on us, just took us in like family. And, you know, Mike and I both came from wonderful Christian families, and yet this love uh, that the professor's family offered began to supplant the own love of our biological family. So, you know, part of what draws people to Mormonism 
Mitt Romney's family. Everybody says, oh, they're such wonderful people. They're such a wonderful family. They love each other. Right. They hang together. And that family atmosphere, you know, it wasn't just that family and us, but it was the whole church in us. It's a whole culture that is not a Sunday thing. It's 24-7. They keep you busy. You get a calling. Um, they build you up, you know, and um, it was just for us inviting. You asked what one of the hooks is. One of the hooks is the Bible. Mormons actually, their eighth article of faith says, we believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it's translated correctly. So Mormons will use a lot of the arguments even that atheists use about the Bible. Oh, yeah, but one monk copied it and then another one and there were errors and you can't trust it, right? So Mm -hmm. Mormonism does not wholly trust the Bible, but they use it um, to bring Christians into Mormonism. That's one way they use the Bible. Mormons actually have four what they call standard works. The Pearl of Great Price, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Bible, and the Book of Mormon. And and as a Mormon, I place the Mormon books above the Bible because that was the one that I thought might be mistranslated in some places, and I couldn't trust it. But the other three had come directly from God um, to Joseph Smith, and so they were reliable. Uh. Yeah, yeah, I I actually had uh, Sandra Tanner on, oh, probably about six to eight months ago. We talked about the Book of Mormon, and it's it's fascinating, yeah, because there are so many problems in the Book of Mormon, so many indicators that, hey, this is uh, a fictional work here, Uh, but yeah, it's it's another testimony, and it's actually held in greater regard than the New Testament or, well, the Old Testament, for that matter, the whole Bible. So were you encouraged to read your Bible a whole lot as a Mormon? When the missionaries first came to the door, they gave us a few Bible verses to read, but very soon they switched to the Book of Mormon and then eventually teach you that it's the most correct book on the face of the earth, that it still says that in the introduction to the Book of Mormon today. They believe that it is. Of course, at the time, I did not know that the Bible has historical evidence, archaeological evidence, geographical evidence, artifacts, you know, all these things that corroborate the cities, the people, the time period, the events of the Bible. Book of Mormon has nothing, absolutely nothing. In fact, a lot of the things in the Book of Mormon are contrary to what archaeology says is true or what, you know, the Book of Mormon is supposed to be about a group of Jews who left Jerusalem before Babylon conquered it in like 687, 686 B.C. Mm-hmm. And they sailed to America and they established um they established a civilization here. But the Book of Mormon has all these logical errors, like if you only have 20 people that sailed over, how can you build this huge temple that it describes building, you know, and it doesn't (laughs) describe meeting any other people? There are just some things that are so illogical 
that never occurred to me, and I'm a research-trained professor, right? Part of that in Mormonism is that my faith was not built on reason. My faith was built on feelings. Um, when the Mormon missionaries challenged us to decide whether we were going to become Mormons, they take a place out of, I think it's, James. I can't remember now. <laughs> no, it's in, yeah, it's in it's... the Book of Mormon. And you're supposed oh, to oh. go to your knees and ask God if the Book of Mormon is true. Yeah. And then you wait for a feeling. And what you're looking for is this warm, fuzzy feeling. And then you know the Holy Spirit is telling you that it's true. Well, I didn't know enough about biblical Christianity to know feelings can be counterfeit by the opposite side, you know. Mm -hmm. So you have this testimony then that's built on this warm, this fuzzy feeling. And when you're shown all these illogical things about Mormonism or the Book of Mormon, it doesn't matter because your testimony um is hooked on a spiritual experience you think you had. You know, it's interesting, too. I've, I've had a lot of Mormons over to my house and a lot of missionaries. I think I've been blacklisted, but um, they never come over anymore. It's probably Red been... dotted. Oh, okay, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> I think it's been about three years. They, they actually had some um, big... I, I really don't know a lot about the, the leadership and the hierarchy that you find in, in the, the LDS movement, but they had some big-name guy come down. He actually visited my house, and it was four of them. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, yeah, that was the last time. That was the last time they ever came here. Um, they, they don't, when you have a discussion with them, uh, they don't take to opposition very well either. Um, in fact, and, and I've heard you mention this in a different interview, uh, let's see here. Contention is of the devil. Now, I never heard that until I heard you talk about it. Um, can right you talk about that Mormon. a little bit? It's scripture. Right out of the Book of Mormon. Yes. So, anyone who contends with you or presents something that's opposite of what you believe, um, I mean, how's this for a trick? <laughs> you, you look at that person as if they're the devil, and you completely shut down. And in fact, what Mormon missionaries will often do if you're presenting something opposite is default to their testimony. I know yeah. that this is true. I know Joseph Smith is a prophet. I know. It's like putting your hands over your ears and going, la, 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 I don't want to hear it. You know, the, the reasoning stuff we don't want to deal with because we had the feeling so we know it's true. That's exactly right. And, and I've seen that play out so many times where this kind of glazed look comes over their face and they start spitting out this, this testimony, kind of just blocking you. Uh, from going any further, it's, oh, it's, it's discouraging, actually. Um, well, that, what does that tell you then about how to deal with Mormons? You can't do a confrontational, well, of course you do whatever the Holy Spirit directs you to do with any particular person. But I would say generally, if you're trying to show a Mormon where there might be doctrinal errors between biblical Christianity and Mormonism, 
that just telling them they're wrong and then opening something and showing it to them, you know, and being very direct to them is contentious and it makes you look like you're the devil's advocate. So lots of prayer, lots of relationship, lots of respect, gentleness. I mean, they treat each other that way. In fact, let me tell you, when I was at BYU, before we started faculty meeting, everyone brought their scriptures in, and we did a little devotional. And to me, it was almost this thing like, we don't want any contention here. We want everybody on the same page. You know, we're we're not going to argue things. We're going to all get along kind of thing. In fact, in my department, if we had any great disagreements, they sometimes took us on a retreat away from the university until we were kind of all in unity, all on the same page. So, no, contention is not anything they think is a good thing. Therefore, you don't have this critical reasoning going on, right? If you can't contend, if you can't hear another point of view then you can't use your your reasoning brain. And one of the things I realized when I left BYU was that we were teaching our students to use critical thinking in biology and geology and, and every other academic area, but when it came to faith, shut your brain down and follow the prophet. Um, use your testimony, use your feelings, and just don't listen to anything opposite. I love biblical Christianity because the Bible itself um, tells you to test everything (laughs) and test it against the Word. And you want Mm -hmm. to hear different points of view, and you want to figure out from the Word whether that matches the Word or not. You're supposed to test the spirits. Um, instead yeah. of ignore them, right? Right, right. Interesting. So, um, you know, going back to some of the hooks, some of the other things that draw people into this movement, um, I've also heard that, uh, I guess, similar to what you see in Freemasonry, uh, there is the, the, this um, element of if you're a Mason, you're definitely going to have a job. If you go through hard times, you know, somebody's going to help you out. They're going to help you find a job. They're going to help get some food in your pantry. Uh, they're going to pick you up when you're down. There's like this real strong sense of like a, a family. That is true. Um, and those things also <clears throat> happen in a gang. I teach multiculturalism <laughs> and, and that's, I used to work with kids in gangs. Um, there seems to be a real human need to belong to a system where you know what the limitations are, you know what the rules and regulations are, therefore you can decide your place, be comfortable, and work your way up the ladder and know how to be recognized, um, know how to be loved, you know. And I think legalistic religion provides that for people who do want Christ, but they want to know what the rules and regs are that I need to do in order to be closer to him, missing the whole point of grace. Um, But Mm. Mormonism is not the only one that way. In fact, I would say everything outside of true biblical Christianity 
requires some kind of works or some kind of reaching, right? Um, right, right. I, I just, yeah, I've, I've seen how that works firsthand with a few uh, old friends of mine who were part of uh, Mormonism that when they needed a job, <clears throat> somebody was right there to get them a job. Uh, when they needed, when their parents needed help, maybe they were a little low on money, they were right there to pick them up. It's, uh, uh, it's fascinating, yes. And, and like you were mentioning, they're very patriotic. Uh, they're USA all the way. <laughs> you know, I can yeah. appreciate that. Um, Traditional they, family. That's right. They're they're just a, a good, clean-looking family. Uh, everybody is generally very clean-cut, very uh, friendly. Uh, the the missionaries that came over to my house, they noticed that uh, part of my backyard didn't have a fence, and immediately they're like, "Well, hey, can we come over and help you build that fence?" Mm, yeah. I mean, and yeah, my jaw dropped to the floor. I was thinking, wow. Now, there hasn't been a single Christian who's offered that to me. And here these guys are. Uh, I didn't, you know, take them up on that. I just, you know, I didn't want to feel indebted to, to them, if you know what I mean. But, um, yeah, it just kind of blew me away. So, what? Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> when I was um, a Relief Society president, each congregation, they call them wards, which is a really interesting term for a congregation. Um, every ward has a bishop who's like the pastor, and then he'll have two counselors that are like assistant pastors, and then there's kind of a female leader of the ward, and that would be the Relief Society president. Of course, she can only lead females. So I was the Relief Society president a couple of times, and part of my responsibility was to find where people had needs and then make sure that they were filled. So I did things like every week filled grocery um, orders for people who needed them. We helped pay rent sometimes. Um, now, the the folks in turn, though, had to be active in church, needed to be paying tithing. Um, so it's a reciprocal kind of relationship. But you are right. There's a, There are long arms of watching out for people, talking recently, uh, talking yesterday to someone who, uh, a young man, a freshman who just went off to school this fall a couple of weeks ago, picked up my book, Unveiling Grace. He's Mormon, read it, now has all these questions about his faith. But his parents are putting great pressure on him to do a mission. You know, they've already called the church in his area to tell them to go find him. Um, long arms of both love, but also what I consider, it's a psychology term, enmeshed. It means that it's almost an unhealthy kind of relationship of watching over someone else that should be making decisions for themselves. Right, right. They're, they they really uh, find their way into every aspect of your life. It's true. When we moved, to, when we left Utah and moved to Florida, we decided that we were never going to church again. So we had never showed up in the church here in Florida. But they knew well we were here. Um, they 
they emailed me at work, they sent invitations, they uh, we were in a gated community where uh, visiting teachers from the church were not supposed to come see me, but they would sneak behind the gates and leave them <laughs> at my door. And it was a little spooky at first. It's like, wow, can't you ever get free from the Mormon church? And this went on for, ooh, probably two years after we'd already given up our membership and were supposed to have been a sponge from the church rolls. Interesting. Interesting. So, okay, what, what's it like on the inside of, of Mormonism? I mean, what, what does the typical service look like? Um, you know, how often do they meet? How does it work? Oh, Three-hour meetings every Sunday, and now oh. that I'm a biblical Christian and can raise my arms <laughs> and praise God, I look back and think, boring, how did I do that all those years? Um, lay people would just be invited to speak, uh, and they would speak, and... So that's, you didn't have some great preacher pound in the pulpit. It was just lay people, and usually there was a teenager every week. But the Mormon Church does a great job from the time that kids are two or three of putting them at a pulpit and having them speak. So Mormons have these great skills for public speaking, um, no fear of sharing the gospel, knocking on doors, um, and we were taught, you know, that we had to rise above everyone in the social environment so that other people would want to be like us. So our kids needed to be the best athletes, and they needed to have the best grades at school. And I did put that kind of pressure on my kids, and um, often they were in those places. And the whole idea was that people would look to you as an example and say, wow, what do you have that we don't have? But now that I'm a biblical Christian, those kind of appearance things don't matter anymore, right? I don't have to be the best looking. I don't have to have the best grades. God doesn't care about those things. He cares that I have faith in him, that I surrender to him daily, that I'm willing to do his will, and that might be walking among the homeless and looking just like them. Um, it, it's, it's not an appearance thing. However, the world really seems drawn to that appearance thing, and I think the Romney family during the election is just a great example of everybody looks good and they're healthy and they're thin and they... You know, they uh, mm-hmm. have, and Mormons always have, are well-educated, very, very high rates of folks going on to school. And they are leaders, right, at their places of work. There are lots of Mormons in the military, uh, lots of Mormons in the CIA, lots of Mormons getting into government. Um, Harry Reid is a Mormon, you probably know. Oh, really? Harry Reid is LDS, yes. Um, Glenn Beck is a very famous LDS person that, you know, has been doing some walking side-by-side, even with some Christian organizations. That fascinates me. That I mean, that, that just blows me away when you find out that certain Christian organizations are recognizing uh, Mormonism, recognizing Glenn Beck as a Christian, um, 
you've got to wonder what what is your definition of Christianity? Uh, of course, well, there's a lot of organizations that are are partnering with uh, Islam as well, with uh, this whole Chrislam movement. But uh, that's a whole other subject. Uh, well, huh. if you know the Bible, um, the very basics of biblical Christianity are things that are foreign to Mormonism. You know, it says that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Mormons do not use the cross. They believe that the atonement happened in the garden when he prayed and he sweat great drops of blood. So when you get down to just the basics of Christianity, the nature of God, well, biblical Christianity believes in the Trinity. Uh, Mormon scripture actually says it's a heresy. They believe that the three members of the Godhood are three separate gods, one in purpose, and that they began as men and worked their way to Godhood. Um, In Mormon Scripture, you have a heavenly father and a heavenly mother. They have sex in heaven. Then they have spirit children. Those spirit children live in a pre-existent kind of holding tank until it's their turn to come to earth and get a body, which you need in order to progress to godhood. And um, that's why Mormons are always evangelizing. They have to help people remember who they are from the pre-existence and come back to the true faith. Um, Mormonism is a system of works. You can't actually get back to live with Heavenly Father unless you go to the temple and do all of these works. They also believe that after you're dead, you can be saved, which is part of what goes on in the temple is doing um, ordinances for those who were already dead on their behalf so that they can accept the gospel in the next life, the gospel of Mormonism. Mm, okay, so you brought up uh, the, the temple. Now, it's my understanding you and Michael spent some time in the temple. Is that right? We worked in the temple for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I, I've, I've seen some videos online. Man, uh, the here in northern Colorado, in a city very close to here, uh, Fort Collins, they're building a temple. Now, my day job is uh, I'm part owner of a company that installs high-end security systems. And, boy, I tried so hard to get in there <laughs> yeah. as their installer because I wanted to see it from the inside. I thought, wow, if I could uh, develop a relationship there, I'd be able to go in there from time to time and, and – uh, Wow, the, the insight I might be able to gain. No, no, they only hire Mormon contractors. I figured that out pretty quickly, so there was no way I could get in there. So, <laughs> you know, uh, I <laughs> I can get my hands on some really good covert technology and and make a really classy video. But you know, who who's with me out there? <laughs> well, you probably know someone by the name of New Name Noah did actually go through the temple ceremony with a video on his watch. And you can oh, find cool. on, on YouTube, you can find on the Internet the entire ceremony. Um, probably bore you to tears, but, you know, still kind of interesting in its own right. So what, what happens in the temple? What What is all that? Well, the first 
kids start going to the temple at the age of 12, and, but they can only go to the basement level of the temple. Usually there are at least three levels of the temple. And what you do at the basement level is you go into this huge baptismal font that is on the back of 12 oxen, kind of like the Old Testament oh. describes. Uh-huh. And... Um, you do what's called baptisms for the dead. So you've got this 12-year-old, and she'll go into that font, and in front of her on a screen, all these names of dead women will pop up, and the gentleman raises his arm to the square, um, says a a ritualistic uh, thing and then begins to dunk her on behalf of Emily so-and-so, on behalf of Jane Brown, on behalf of, and someone might do maybe 12 of them and then they bring another youth in and that youth does another 12. The idea is you can't be saved without baptism into the Mormon church But if you didn't hear about Mormonism in this life, you get another chance after you're dead because Christ will teach you about it and there will be Mormon missionary kind of folks on the other side teaching you about Mormonism. But you still can actually be saved if you accept it on the other side unless you've gone through physical ordinances. Um, It says in their... um, I mean, it's the Articles of Faith, that you're saved by grace, something like by the, you're saved by the laws and oh. ordinances of the Mormon gospel. So the way you get saved is by these ordinances. So you'll take someone's name and first you'll baptize them for the dead. Then those same names go up to the next level and there's a washing and an anointing process. What? Yeah, oh my. And when I first did the washing and anointing, they touched all kinds of very private parts of your body. And you're, you're naked during this with a kind of a shield on that looks kind of like a gaucho, you know, a white (laughs) gaucho thing. And uh, you go through these different, these four stations and first they wash you with all these ritualistic things they say and then you go to the next one they anoint all these different parts of your body and then the third one is they give you the garment of the holy priesthood Um, Mormons who are good regular temple goers will wear underwear this garment of the holy priesthood that reminds you of your faith who you are um, what your responsibilities are, you know, what works you need to do, that kind of stuff. So Mike and I wore those Mormon garments for 30 years. So so it's almost like those, you know, as people jokingly refer to the magic underwear, it's almost the same concept as what you would see when you see a Jew wearing his yarmulke. It's, you know, that's supposed to, part of that is supposed to symbolize the weight of God's stare upon your head like God is looking at you so the underwear is to remind you of this continual walk that is part of what it does the other thing we were told is that it will physically and spiritually protect you so it protects you spiritually from attacks I guess from the devil and it's supposed to 
physically keep you from harm. So there were all kinds of stories, uh, Mormon myths that would run around that I always believed, right, where somebody would be in a fire and all his body was burned, but where his Mormon garments were, nothing was touched. <laughs> Or somebody would be drowned and, you know, I don't know, or a shark would attack them and, you know, they lost the bottom of their leg, but it was all fine where their, Mor- where their Mormon garments were. That's how reverently Mormons believe in those garments. After wow. the washing and anointing, you go to a probably hour and a half instructional ceremony called the endowment and you make six covenants there and you learn signs and tokens which i now know are the same signs and tokens from masonry just yes they are was a mason but of course i didn't know that as a mormon and knew nothing about masonry and then the very last ordinance in the temple in the the highest part of the temple um, is something called a ceiling. And so you actually can't live, in Mormonism, you actually can't live with God the Father in the next life if you're not married. So you have to be married to a good temple-going Mormon, someone who has a temple recommend. It's actually a little card you like carry in your billfold. <laughs> and is it is it like a proximity card? Like you wave it in front of a electronic reader and it lets you in, or is it some kind of like a badge? Um, it looks. When I was there, it looked kind of like a library card. I know they're electronic now, so I'm not sure what they look like now. But Interesting. I'm, I'm sure it does. I'm sure that it does track. I've heard that electronically it'll track which temples you've been to and how frequently you're going to the temple and that kind okay. of stuff, which probably means that's how the brethren at the top decide who the faithful are, you know, and who needs to have certain callings, and that would be my guess. Of course, I'm not a brethren at the top, so I, I don't know that for sure. But the last ceremony at the top of the temple then is the sealing. So Mike and I were sealed together as a couple. They believe that marriage is for this life and for the next life. Mormons also believe that there are more righteous women than men. So when you Mm. get to the next life, there aren't going to be enough good priesthood holders for all the men. So you need to be polygamous. Besides you need to be polygamous, yeah, in, in Doctrine and Covenants 132, it is still in Mormon scripture that polygamy is an eternal principle, eternal. So they believe that God gave it to Abraham and, you know, the patriarchs lived it because God asked them to. And boy, was my husband blown away when he went back to Genesis and started reading that God didn't give Hagar <laughs> to, <laughs> to Abraham. It was Sarah's idea, and God had nothing to do with it, you know. But Mormon uh-huh. scripture says that it was God who ordained it. So um, my thinking was very confused until I got into the Bible for quite a while, actually. All right, guys, I'm going to stop right there. Again, that's Lynn Wilder. Her website is unveilinggrace.com, 
also unveilinggracethebook.com. And, well, Lynn Wilder, she still has a lot more to say. So next week we'll pick up where we left off here. I love you guys, and we'll see you next week.